we are nearing the end of our journey through the book of Daniel. We have just a few more weeks. And then we will move on to the book of Acts. But for this morning, we will be looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is holy. The Word of the Lord is inerrant. The Word of the Lord is authoritative and sufficient. Daniel chapter 9. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking the prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree poured out on the desolator. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us, that you would teach us your wisdom, your ways, your truth, your love and your holiness. We ask, O Lord, that you would show us more of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, those of you that have been with us for some time know that it is my practice, it's actually our practice together, John's as well, to preach expositionally and consecutively through books. There are a large number of advantages to that. You always know what your next text is going to be. The congregation knows the context. But there is at least one disadvantage to that, and that is you come to a text like this and you have to treat it. You can't move on to the next topic, a text that is of great difficulty, so much so that perhaps in every commentary that I read, there was a pithy quote 
from a couple of centuries ago. And the quote goes something like this. Daniel 9, 20 through 27 is exegetical swamp land. Literally, that's what they say. The great church father Jerome, when he set forth in his commentary on Daniel, said, I really don't know how to interpret this, so I'm just going to tell you nine interpretations that other church fathers have had, and I'll let you pick, because I don't know. And so, oftentimes, we can come to a text like this, and we are marveled, and we are concerned, and we are confused. What is this desolation? Who is this prince? Who are these people? What is this event? And we spend a great deal of time trying to get into the details and the minutiae of the text. But what I want you to remember is the great advantage of preaching consecutively through a book is that you all have been journeying together through Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and the first half of 9. And you have seen what we have done. We are treating the large themes of Daniel. We are seeing what the purpose of the book is. And this is the way that we will approach this text as well. In the context of this chapter and the whole book. And what I hope to to see this morning is a God who answers prayer. The God who answers prayer. And we will see this in three ways. That God answers in His time. He answers prayer in His time. And he also answers with his purpose. Not only does he answer in his own time, but he answers according to his own purpose. And then finally we will see that so often, if not always, God answers with his covenant. That is the substance of his answer. In God's time. For God's purpose. With God's covenant. Well, let's begin then by looking at how God answers in his own time. Now, remember the purpose of the book that we have seen. You may have heard this statement, that context is king. Have you ever heard part of a conversation? You're listening, and you think, oh no, something horrible has happened. And you've missed the beginning of the conversation that says how they were spared from this thing that had happened. You see... We need to understand Daniel 9, the end of the chapter, in the context of the whole book. And you see, the Bible is written for our instruction, not for our curiosity. God did not give us this text so that we might know who the future king of Europe would be. You remember, we looked at that last week, or two weeks ago, excuse me, in Daniel 8. Alexander the Great, perhaps the greatest conqueror in the history of man, conquered the known world in his day, is given but a few lines in Daniel 8. And much more detail is paid to Antiochus, a backwater king who history books don't even really discuss because of his effect on God's people and because of his part in God's plan. We also need to remember that when we look at the Scriptures and we come across something that is unclear, we interpret it in the light of something that is clear. The clear interprets the dark. So rather than rework all of the theology and all of the scripture that we know around a difficult passage, we're going to bring that light to this passage. The second thing I want you to to think about is, is that God answers in his time because he is showing us his view of this prayer that Daniel has given. This answer is an answer to prayer. It is not merely a vision 
such as would come to Isaiah or to Malachi. This is an answer to prayer, and we must remember this passage in that context. Even though it is very mysterious, even though we might sink in the bog of the swamp of it, we must remember that the main focus of this entire chapter is God answering the heartfelt prayer of one of his servants that his name would be glorified, that his city would be rebuilt, and that his people would be restored. That's the context. You see, even the famous phrase that we see in Mark about the abomination of desolation doesn't really come from this chapter. It actually comes from Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. And it's used again in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. The words are used here, but there is no certainty that what our Lord is referring to is this chapter. He could be referring to all three or even the latter two. So what I want us to focus on is that God's view of this prayer is about the fulfillment of the restoration and transformation of his people. And he answers in his time. And he not only shows us his view of the prayer, but he answers in his time and his answer is swift. It is a swift answer. And this shows us the reality of God hearing prayer. Now, notice what happens here in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, and again in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel came to me in swift flight. Now, the word here, first of all, for swift flight, that phrase, it's, it's a phrase that brings about a concept of exhaustion. Quickness of quickness. Exhaustion of exhaustion. It is so fast It's the kind of swiftness that leaves us breathless. Not just the one who is traveling, but the one who is seeing it. Have you ever seen that, watched a track event and seen someone be so fast? Or or you watch the football game and someone cuts against the grain and goes so quickly you're out of breath? That's what's happening here. That's how swiftly Gabriel has come. He is coming to answer the prayer before Daniel is finished. Now think about that. We would all desire that, wouldn't we? You know, we think a fast answer to a prayer is the same day or the same week. Here, Daniel gets cut off in mid-sentence. And Daniel says, here I am. God has sent me. Now, doesn't that tell us about the reality of God hearing prayer? God doesn't have, as some films or plays or novels describe, he doesn't have a laundry list of prayers that he runs through and checks off a list. No, he is almighty God. We could all stop right now and go to the Lord in prayer individually, and he hears all of us right at the very moment we pray. You don't have to get in queue. You know, I remember when I was younger going to the grocery store with my mother, and you would go and you would have the dreaded red tape box that you would pick off a number before you could get your ham or your turkey or your salami. And you would look at that and look at the number that was on the screen. The number on the screen was 10 and you were 42. And you would say, oh no. And you didn't dare go off somewhere and shop because if you missed your number, you'd have to pick another number. You see, sometimes I think that's how we think about prayer. We lob up prayers and we hope that sometime God will get around to answering us. Of course, we're not as important as the president or kings or pastors or missionaries, but he'll get around to us. Not so, says Daniel. 
Gabriel answers as soon as he comes. And God answers immediately, even when the answer takes long to come about. You see, God answers Daniel immediately, but as we will see in a few minutes, he's going to tell Daniel not only does he have to wait the length of time that Jeremiah said, he's going to add another 490 years to it before it's really fulfilled. And so we need to think about this. You know, it doesn't happen much here. But up north, we have a thing that we do when the weather is like it is today. We go out in the driveway and we turn on the car and we go back in the house. Because if you drive right away and turn the heater on, you get a nice dose of air conditioning. Right? Because the car has to warm up. It's not ready. You know that the car is on. You know the heater works. But it's not ready yet the same way our ladies have experienced to their chagrin with our stove. You can turn that on, but it doesn't reach the temperature right away. It needs to heat up a little bit longer than normal. It's a safety feature. You see, sometimes that's what prayer is like. We need to know that our prayers are being heard. We need to know that we are communicating with God. We need to know that God has answered our prayer, even if we do not see its effects immediately. Because God is sovereign. Prayer, you see, is not just about us laying out our requests to God. Prayer is an opportunity to trust the living God, to know that He has heard, to know that He will answer, and He will answer in a way that is to our good and His glory. And so this is what God does. God knows that Daniel needs to understand what is going on. That's what Gabriel says. He knows Daniel needs to see the truth. Behind the prayer. And so God tells him this quick answer. Swiftly he comes to it. There's another thing that I would like you to see about this prayer. It's kind of hidden here, this answer to prayer. Gabriel says in verse 23, I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. You see, We see God's answer in his own time, and it's an answer of love. Daniel had asked, he had asked the Lord, please hear, and God did hear, and he told him. And that showed his love and concern for Daniel. It's the way, for example, that a husband cares for his wife when she's speaking to him, perhaps at much greater length than he would desire, and in much greater detail than he wants when he repeats back to her some of what she has said. Let's her know that he's listening. And often the case, it's not because he desires all that detail. It's because he loves his wife and wants her to know she is loved. That's what God is doing here for Daniel. And he even confirms it in the very words that he uses. He says that Daniel is greatly loved, or some of your translations might use the word esteemed, honored, We might even use the old-fashioned word, cherished. That's what this Hebrew word means. You see, Daniel is valuable to God. He is close to God's heart. We see this love in the response. We see this love confirmed in the words. And there's something else that we see the love. We see it experienced in the time in which God answers. Now, I want you to notice that God answers Daniel... It says, at the time 
of the evening sacrifice. In verse 21. Now, that may not seem like much until we realize that it has been perhaps 70 years since Daniel has seen an evening sacrifice. 70 years. He would have been a child. There are no evening sacrifices. There's no temple. There are no priests. And yet for 70 years, Daniel marks his days by the sacrifices of the temple. His life is completely centered around God. Now think about that. How many of you kept habits, say, when you move from one city to another, or one job to another, for a week or two, or a month, maybe even a year or two? But 70 years? This made an impression upon Daniel. And it wasn't as if Daniel had been doing it for 70 years, and so he was so used to it. He had been participating, perhaps, in the evening sacrifice for five or six years before he was carried off to Babylon. And God chooses this very moment to answer prayer. It's as if God is reaching out to Daniel and saying, Yes, I know the evening sacrifice too. This is where we connect, Daniel. This is where we commune. God speaks to Daniel. He answers prayer in his own time through love. Then God answers with a purpose. It's with his own purpose. He comes to Daniel with an answer to prayer. Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. You see, God wants Daniel to understand what is before him. He wants him to understand the vision. Now, as we first think about this, we wonder, where's the vision? There's a vision in chapter 8, the vision in chapter 2, the vision in chapter 5. I don't see a vision in chapter 9, do you? There's just a prayer. Where is the vision? What needs explaining? And our answer comes to us in that prayer of chapter 9. You see, the vision, the communication from God is the very word of God from Jeremiah. You see, God wants Daniel to understand what he has written in his word. This is so like God. Perhaps you might think, well, I wish I had an angel to come down when I was having my morning devotions to help me understand some of these difficult passages. And I encourage you and say, you have better than an angel. You have better than Gabriel. You have the Holy Spirit to illumine the Word of God. God has given you His Spirit that you might know, that you might understand. You see, this is God's purpose. He wants, to have, he wants Daniel to have hope, to have a background of hope. He wants to explain to Daniel that restoration is about more than rebuilding. You'll recall that in Daniel's prayer, he's concerned for the city of Jerusalem. It has been flattened. The temple has been destroyed and looted. All that he knows and could see or touch is gone. And God wants Daniel to look beyond simply the rebuilding of this temple, the rebuilding of these walls, the repopulating of this city. Now, that is important, but restoration is about more than rebuilding. 
Those of you that have experienced difficulties in your marriages know that it is about more than simply finding peace in the home. It's about rebuilding and restoring love, trust, relationships. Anytime you've ever had conflict, you want to do more than simply be civil to each other. To simply get over the rough bumps. No, we want to see restoration. To see the covenant renewed. And so, Daniel might be thinking not just about the passage in Jeremiah about 70 years. He might have gone on to read in Jeremiah 31. Or Jeremiah 33, where he hears about the new covenant that God will make with His people. That He will restore them. That He will write His law upon their hearts. That they will not need anyone to teach them. There will be a new covenant in which He will build His relationship with the people of Israel. We see this in Jeremiah 31. We see it in Jeremiah 33. We see it in Ezekiel 37. This kind of restoration is a restoration of substance, of the covenant of God. And as we think about God's covenant, it helps us to understand what is going on in the background of these 490 years. You may have wondered to yourself, why does Daniel 9 use this kind of language? In verse 24, why does it say 77s or 70 weeks? is what the ESV has. But the word there for week is actually the word for seven. It's used in other places as week because there's seven days in a week. Why does Daniel speak of 70 weeks? And then why does this come out to 490 years? Is this just God has determined it'll be 490 and not 491 or 489? Or is there some significance behind it? You may recall that in the law, in Leviticus 26, that God not only laid down a Sabbath day, such as we participate in now, but he actually laid out a Sabbath year. It was a way of letting the land rest. Good farmers know you do that. You keep your land fallow for a period of time so that you don't deplete all the minerals. And every seventh year was a Sabbath year. You were supposed to let the land rest. And every seventh Sabbath year, every seventh seventh, was the year of Jubilee, in which you were supposed to do, according to our society, something crazy. Forgive every debt. You owe money on your house? Not anymore. Loan on a car? No more. If you loan money to your neighbor? Well, no more. It was the year of Jubilee. This was actually even used by politicians a few years ago in African debt relief. This was the law laid down by God. There was only one problem. Israel never had a Jubilee. They never forgave any debts. Israel never had a Sabbath year. They never let the land rest. They kept working. They kept going. God kept saying to them, you, you need to rest. You need to honor my law. You need to honor the Sabbaths. And they didn't. They didn't honor them at all. And God said to them, you have not kept my Sabbaths. So therefore, I will send you out and force you to keep my Sabbaths. I will exile you from the land. The land will have rest. 
70 years of rest. That's one of the reasons why. You may have wondered why in the New Testament the Pharisees get all bent out of shape about the Sabbath with our Lord. It's because they knew that's what they had been punished for, for never keeping the Sabbath. And so they were going to keep it no matter what. And they took God's commandment beyond what he had given. And they built rules and regulations beyond what our Lord had set forth, evidenced by the fact that they accused the Lord Jesus Christ of breaking that commandment. And so this is a background here. It's a background of hope that God has laid out before Daniel, that he's going to restore the covenant, that he's going to restore the Sabbath, that he's going to restore rest and jubilee, freedom. Now, how is he going to do this? This background of hope is fulfilled in the way, first of all, that God deals with sin. Look here at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. The first way that God is going to fill this is by, fulfill this is by dealing with sin. Transgression will be finished, it will be no more. Sin will be brought to an end. Iniquity will be atoned for, and there will be sin dealt with, answered, and concluded. Now, you see, this language leads many to look forward to the final consummation, to when our Lord comes back the second time. But if we think about it, that is not when sin was dealt with. That is not when transgression was ended. That is not when atonement for iniquity was had. All of those things happened at the cross. At the cross, sin was canceled forever, the debt paid for God's people. Atonement full and clear given by our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin was brought to its end. We need not fear death or sin again because of the work of Jesus. We long for the final manifestation of that when he returns But we don't need to wait for that to know that God has dealt with our sin. Do you have that experience of forgiveness? Do you know that your sin is forgiven? Your transgressions are canceled because of the work of Jesus Christ. You see, God puts that before you. He calls you. He calls you to repent. To have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust in the work of the cross. To trust in God's work ending transgression, sin, and iniquity. This is what Daniel is told. You see, Daniel asks for a morsel, and God lays out a steak banquet for him. He says, you want restoration of a city? I will show you sin forever ended. I will show you transgression gone, iniquity atoned for. The power of sin is broken by the cross. And that's wondrous news for you and for me. Because we then know no matter how dark things get, there is hope. Even if we are praying in a closet, in a foreign pagan land, with enemies around us, there is hope because God is in charge and God has dealt with sin. God answers with his purpose and his purpose is a background of hope and it is dealing with sin, but it is also fulfilling his word. Look again. At verse 24, not only will the transgression be uh, finished and an end be put to sin, 
He will also seal the vision and the prophet. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Many of us think of the word seal as kind of closing the book so no one can read it. And there are many who interpret this as saying, we can't know any of the answers of what is to happen. God is now sealing this up for everyone, but a few select who can understand it. In reality, I want you to think of something different when you hear the word seal. Don't think of closing the book. Don't think of a gray animal that barks. I want you to think of a ring. You know, kings had rings. This is a very simple wedding ring. Kings had big, gigantic rings that make those college rings look tiny. You know, those big rings with the, with the stone in the middle of them and words around them? Kings had them, and they were called signet rings. Because what they did was they would write a letter, and because they didn't have the Federal Express with sealed envelopes, what they would do is they would roll up the scroll, tie it off, put a drop of wax, and then stamp it with their ring so that everyone would know it came from the king and it had not been opened. It was authoritative. You see, that's what God is doing here for Daniel. He is sealing the vision and sealing the prophet. He is saying, I am taking ownership of this promise, Daniel. You can count on it. Here's my signature on the bottom line. Have you ever seen that? Someone tries to hand you a contract or, or a diploma and it's not signed. And you say, Wait a minute. This isn't worth much. You could print this out on a printer. But when you look at something like the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence with a big, huge John Hancock on it, you look at it and you say, I know, that's authoritative. They believe what they say. That's what God is doing here. He is showing his ownership of the promises, the promises that sin will be ended, that the covenant will be renewed, that Jerusalem will be restored, that Daniel will be lifted up. This is what he is doing, and we can take great comfort from this. We can have great pleasure in hearing this. Why? Is it because I have a stash of secret promises with rings that I've stamped to hand out later? No. It's because of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20, where he says, every promise in Jesus Christ is what? Yes and amen. Can you say that? Amen. Every single promise of God is yes in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the seal. Do you wonder about your ability to provide for yourself? God says, I will provide for you. And he seals it with Jesus. Do you wonder if your marriage can get through a rough patch? God says, I have created them, male and female. What God has joined, let no man tear asunder, and he seals it with Jesus. Do you wonder if God will take care of your children? God says that he will admonish and chastise his children, that he keeps his covenant from generation to generation, that his word will not fail, and he seals it with Jesus. Every promise that you can see and claim is sealed. Promise with Jesus. This is how God fulfills His Word. He does one last thing in His purpose. You'll see He not only atones for iniquity, He not only seals the vision in the prophet, but He also establishes righteousness. 
He brings about an everlasting righteousness, and he anoints a most holy place. If we think about him establishing righteousness, this comes obvious to us. Because who is our righteousness as believers? Who is your righteousness? It's Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. Christ our righteousness. Not Christ our means to righteousness. Not Christ our teacher of righteousness. Christ our righteousness. You see, it is an eternal righteousness we have because it comes from Jesus. It is Jesus Christ. God has answered that prayer for Daniel, for you, and for me. But what about this anointing of the most holy place? Again, many think about this as something to happen in the future, and they try and think about what could be a most holy place. Is it, is it a renewed temple? Is it somehow a super cathedral? Is it, how does that relate to the church? Because we had the most holy place in the tabernacle but, and, and in the temple, but now that doesn't exist anymore. What do we do? I think our solution is to continue to look to God's purpose and not to our speculation. The anointing of the most holy place happens at the same time that transgression is ended. That sin is ended. That iniquity is atoned for. Do you remember what happened at the death of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the just holy place? The holiest place in all of the temple ripped, didn't it? From top to bottom. The act of God the hand of God, just as much as in Daniel 5. You see, Jesus Christ fulfilled everything that the Holy of Holies represented. He is the one who anointed the most holy place. It is most holy because of what He has done, because of who He is. It's the reason why, perhaps, you didn't know what this passage meant. John 17, 19, when Jesus says, For their sakes I consecrate myself. You see, he makes himself holy, even though he is holy, to consecrate the Holy of Holies, to renew it. It's the reason why, as the church, we don't need a building. I've told you this before. This is a wonderful tool we have. The sound works well. Most of the time, the temperature's good. You can hear the piano. It's a good place to gather together, but it's a tool. It's not like the temple. Because wherever believers are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, His Spirit is there and He is there. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. He is our holy place. Are you looking for more than that? You won't find it. You won't find it in a rebuilt temple. You won't find it in renewed sacrifices. The consummation of all of history, both mankind and redemptive, is in the mission, work, life, and death of Jesus Christ. That's what Daniel was pointing us to. This is the way that God answers with his purpose. The final thing that God does here for Daniel through Gabriel is he answers with his covenant. He answers with his covenant in three ways. By rebuilding, confirming, and restoring. First, by rebuilding. 
you'll see here that Gabriel describes, he says, the first thing that will happen is there will be seven weeks. Seven weeks, then 62 weeks. And some translations put a comma, some don't. You could treat it either as two separate groups or one group of 69. It really doesn't matter too much. Because you see, this is the partial fulfillment of that prophecy in Jeremiah. You'll see what he says here. In 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat. That is the city. Now, squares here doesn't mean that there are going to be uh, blocks making up the city. What it means is it's like a market square. And so what Gabriel is saying is, The first thing that God is going to do is rebuild Jerusalem and it will be alive and lively. There will be commerce and it will be protected. There will be a moat. I don't know if there's a drawbridge, but there will be a large moat to protect the people of God. This is the first thing that will happen. But you see, unless Daniel would be tempted to see that as the end, having arrived, God says that's only a way station. That's one of those rest stops. You know, when you're driving down the highway and it says rest stop, next one 30 miles, you figure you better get off, but you know you're not at your destination yet. This is a rest stop for the people of God because, look, what will happen is there will be a square and there will be a moat, but it will be a troubled time. And doesn't this describe from the minute the Jews get back to Jerusalem? They have trouble rebuilding the temple. They have to rebuild the walls with a sword in one hand because they're afraid they're going to get attacked. And then when that's rebuilt, we have attacks from outsiders. Antiochus Epiphany comes in. The Egyptians come in. The Romans come in. There's fighting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's rebellion. There's theft. There's all kinds of problems. There's no peace. The lion isn't laying down with the lamb. No. It's just a stage in the journey. You see, we sometimes, I think, expect straight progress out of God, both in prophecy and in our own lives. We expect every day to be just a little bit better than the last one. And so on and so on and so on. That's what sanctification is like. When in reality, life is not a straight line up. It's a curvy line with downs and ups and a little bit of downs and a little bit of ups. And that's what God is saying to Daniel. He's describing this for him. So the rebuilding will happen, but it is a waypoint. And God says, there is also another thing that will happen. I will confirm my covenant. And he does it in in typical God fashion, in a way that is surprising to us. Look with me here, if you would, at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, that is the 7 plus the 62 equals 69, so almost the end, an anointed one, If we were to transliterate that like baptism, that would be the Messiah. That's what anointed one means. The Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. What does that mean? That means that at the end of 69 weeks, God will confirm his covenant with his people by cutting off his Messiah. And he will have nothing. Does that sound like anything to you? How our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost even his relationship with God. He was cut off. It was a violent death. 
a violent punishment of death. That's exactly what this word here means, cut off. It is to cut something in two, to hack at it, to separate it with a sword. The Messiah is cut off, and the Old Covenant is taken away. Who are these people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary? Oftentimes, again, we look at this passage and we think, well, maybe it's the rebuilt European Union. Or maybe it's Genghis Khan, or Bill Gates, or someone else. When in reality, I think we find the answer in chapter 8. In chapter 8, in verse 12, we see that a host will be given over to it, that is, the beast, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And so the question is, whose transgression? And you remember we said it was Israel's transgression. Because they had sinned, God handed them over to Antiochus. Same thing here. Israel had sinned. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They committed the transgression of transgressions. We might even say an abomination. By rejecting and killing the Son of God. And God responds with judgment. He sends a general named Titus, whose father had just become emperor. And they flattened Jerusalem like no one has ever flattened Jerusalem. The Babylonians, they were kid stuff. He took all of the Jews, and after killing as many as he could, and destroying all of their buildings, and destroying their temple completely, he spread them out all over the world, That's why there are Jews in Russia and Poland and France and England and Spain. It's because of Titus. He sent them everywhere. He wanted to destroy the nation completely so that they would never bother Rome again. But you see, the believer's view of history is not about Titus. It's not about Vespasian. It's not about uh, Masada. It's about God and His covenant. And when the Israelites rejected His covenant... God confirmed it by taking away the Old Covenant and establishing the New. And so what He does then finally is He restores this covenant. In verse 27 we see, He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This one week is the last times, the end of days. It is from the cross onward. The cross is in the middle of this last day. And the end of sacrifices is found from that second half. Because there is no more need for sacrifice. It is not a covenant that is cut. It is a covenant that is confirmed. It is established in Jesus Christ. And so what we see here, in conclusion, is God slowly unfolding this text for us. In verse 24, he talks about the entirety of the 70 weeks. In verse 25, he talks about just the first 69 That is, before Christ. And then in verse 26, he looks at the last seven, the last seven years, that last week, in a general way. But then in verse 27, he deals with it in detail. Talking about the sacrifices that shall be ended. The abomination of the crucifixion. And the coming of the one who shall make desolate. That is, the judgment of God. Until the decreed end is poured out. 
You see, Daniel, at the end of this, is not afraid for the first time in a long time. And it's because he sees that God is in control, that God answers prayer, and that God commits himself to his promises through his anointed one. God does that even today. It's what this table is about, what we will experience. It's God showing that he keeps his promises in Jesus Christ. And he does it through the cutting off of the Messiah that you might have the forgiveness of sins. Dwell upon that. Focus upon that. For there you find hope. 